fruit. And I don't know about you, but I'm totally comfortable with a real movement of preaching um, the, the true gospel spreading throughout this nation. If that's going to come from this, I'm comfortable with that. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for that, okay? And let's pray for what's happening. Let's pray for good leadership to be there. So if you don't know what I'm even talking about, look it up, okay? You can look up Asbury Revival, and you can see that God in these college campuses that have been run by mainline denominations that have been pretty dead for years, there seems to be something happening where there's some college students responding in confession and in repentance. Again, if you go and you do some reading about it, there's also some stuff going on where you go, that eh, doesn't seem too healthy. And then there's some stuff happening, you go, that is awesome. Let's just pray and not be so quick to condemn uh, or to run around screaming about it. Let's pray. And let's do that right now. God, we don't know what you're doing out in the Midwest and what's happening on college campuses. We see that there are worship services going on on a couple of college campuses now that have been going on for multiple days. They're continuing on, Lord. In some cases, I have seen where the gospel's being preached and people are repenting and they are confessing and they are putting their faith in you. And where that is happening, God, we are happy about that and we want to see uh, it grow, Lord. We know if it's real, it's going to be connected to the local church and that local churches will grow because of this. We know if it's real, Father, people will love their neighbors more because of this. Because if it's real, they will repent of their sin and confess it. Uh, if it's real, they are going to have their whole, your Holy Spirit dwelling in them and they are going to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Father, if it is real, um, people are going to love your Bible more and want to study it. Uh, and they are going to submit themselves to its uh, commands. And Lord, to know those things takes time. You know God. You know, but we don't. And so I just pray that we would be patient enough to say we are not God and you are, to step back, to get on our knees, and to ask that if this is not of you, Lord, um, that you would make it of you. And if it is of you, Lord, that you would burn away the dross and that, uh, and that it would glorify you. So whatever you're doing, Lord, uh, we pray that the gospel would spread throughout our nation. And that's what we're asking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And maybe save a few more emails this week. Uh, so answer some questions and uh, hopefully let you know what you need to do, which is to pray, pray, pray. Often that is the answer for us. O oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And when the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Those are the words of Helen Lemel. She was the daughter of a Methodist minister. Methodist, there they are again. Born in 1863. She had a really wonderful life from the start, was raised to love music, and uh, her parents actually got her the best vocal coaches available. And so uh, she was uh, growing in her love of music and her abilities and her skills and was so good, they said, we got to move you to Germany uh, to get you the very best training possible. So they moved their daughter to Germany, and she is there studying vocal music. She meets a very wealthy European man. And you guys, I know you're listening to this, you're like, this sounds like an Anne Hathaway novel, right? This, this, this sounds fantastic, right? I mean, like, what a life. But suddenly she lost her sight, and she became blind. 
And when that happened, the wealthy European man was like, I didn't sign up for this. And so he left her. So at 55 years old, at this point thrown about by multiple heartaches, having lost her sight, someone gave her a gospel tract and explained it to her. And the words of the tract said, So then, turn your eyes upon him, look full into his face, and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. Lemuel said, Suddenly, as if commanded to stop and listen, I stood still and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus of the hymn with not one conscious moment of putting word to word or make rhyme or note to note or to make melody. So what she's saying is like she heard that and immediately in her head, she had turned your eyes upon Jesus, the chorus. It was just like, boom, God gave it to her. She had it. And then she says, uh, the verses were written the same week after the usual manner of composition, but nonetheless dictated by the Holy Spirit. It is the simplest of songs with a very simple admonition. To lift your gaze up off of the troubles of this life and this world and to put them on Jesus. Gaze upon Christ with the eyes of faith in the heart. Stare at Christ. See Him. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And that's what we want to do this morning. Last week we looked at the comfort of the Father in our triune strength series. This morning we look at the second person of the Trinity. Jesus the Messiah. The anointed Christ. The Son of God. The prophet. The priest. The king. And we turn to Hebrews 12 to find instruction on how to do that. Uh, A little bit about Hebrews. It seems to have been written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. The way that animal sacrifice is talked about in chapters 10 and 11 certainly hints at the authorship coming before the temple's destruction. Certainly hints that as the author is writing, and I say the author because we don't know who wrote it, but as the author is writing, uh, it seems to be talking about sacrifice as if it's still happening at the temple. Probably a sermon written for a Jewish Christian congregation. It focuses on how Jesus has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. How he is the fulfillment of all the types and the shadows that we see in the Old Testament. And how he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. And more than that, it shows continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That truly, we are dealing with the same God in the Old Covenant that we're dealing with in the New Covenant. Uh, whenever you talk to people who say, well, I just feel like the God of the Old Testament's mean and he's different from the God of the New Testament, you should say, you need to read Hebrews, right? Don't just send some unbeliever off on that journey alone, right? And say, I would love to get together with you to read Hebrews. Uh, But Hebrews is the book for them. Hebrews shows us how they're connected. If you hear a preacher like Andy Stanley get up and say, we need to uh, take the New Testament and we need to detach it from the Old Testament, That's wrong, and that is insane, and that is ridiculous. No, the entire book of Hebrews is about the fact that you can't do that, right? They're totally connected, and that Jesus is superior, and Jesus is supreme, and that it's all been pointing to him. And so throughout this letter uh, and this sermon, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, don't go back, don't go back. Jesus is superior. Jesus is supreme. So don't go back and trust in circumcision. Don't go back and trust in the sacrifices. Don't go back and trust in the law. You have Jesus now. You don't need to trust in those things anymore. 
We're going to pick this up toward the end of the letter after the author has explained that the Old Testament is filled with saints who had faith in God but had not seen the fullness of His promise in the coming of the Messiah. But now, as New Covenant believers, we have seen the promise of Christ and we need to keep our eyes on Him. So we'll pick it up in verse 1, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God." I want us to start by looking at the command at the end of verse 2. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run. This is the goal that we're, we're trying to put the ball through. Okay? We want to run the race that God has given us in such a way where we are faithful to Him all the way to the end. There's no point in the race where we stop and go, you know what, I'm leaving the track. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want to run anymore. I can't run anymore. I'm done. No, we want to be faithful all the way to the end. And in order to uh, explain this, the author is using a metaphor, and he refers to the Pan-Hellenic Games, which were a bit of a precursor to the Olympics as we know them. The Pan-Hellenic Games had chariot racing, which by the way, why did we take the chariot racing out of the Olympics? All right, Some of these Olympic sports are incredibly boring. I would watch chariot racing, okay? Put it on in the prime time slot during the Olympics and I'm there. Summer, winter, I don't care. Do it on ice, do it on sand. Let's just do some chariot racing. Anyways, let's keep going. Wrestling, boxing, they're throwing the javelin, the discus, they're doing all that stuff. And of course... The main thing was all these different foot races of various lengths and conditions. That was truly the main event. And the games would take place in four-year cycles. Sound familiar? And, and they were not just about athletics. They were about maintaining Greek culture. They were about honoring the gods. They were about solidifying Greek identity. But that being said, winning was still important. They competed in hopes of winning the victor's crown. They competed in hopes of getting the winner's wreath placed on their head. The ancient world was very familiar with the games, very familiar with the festivals that came along with them. It was a part of the average person's lexicon. Like this week, if you came up to somebody and you were like, can you believe that call at the end of the Super Bowl? They might have gone, what was the call? But nobody went, what's the Super Bowl, right? Everybody knows what the Super Bowl is. Everybody's aware of the Super Bowl. Even if they go, oh, I don't watch that. I don't watch the Super Bowl. You know, I stopped watching that years ago. Even if that's their feeling, they know what the Super Bowl is. And in the same way, the, the people of the ancient world knew what the Pan-Hellenic Games were. It was a part of their vocabulary. So as the author uses this metaphor of the games and running a race to draw this connection to the life that we live as Christian people, it would have definitely resonated with the audience. They would have thought of all those runners getting ready to take off and chase the winner's crown, to chase the wreath on the head. When we think about our race that we run as believers... It didn't begin the day that you were born of a woman. 
It began the day that you were born of the Spirit. My race began the day that I became a Christian. My life before Christ is crucified with him, but the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My race began on July 14th, 1999 in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. That is when and and where I was saved. It was at a summer camp, Crossroads Summer Camp. The preacher was Clayton King. He preached from the book of Proverbs on the verse that says that um, if you have a bitter heart, no one can share in your joy. And he preached that not even God shares in the joy of your life if you have a bitter heart, that you actually have no joy, and that you need Jesus. And I responded in faith that night. Uh, pretty awesome thing was uh, about 10 years after that, I took a youth group to that summer camp when I was working in Nashville, Tennessee. And my, uh, actually, I don't know if my wife went with me on that trip or not. She was super pregnant, I think, with Beckett who's super tall now. Um, so we were, uh, I, I'm on that trip and I got to walk up to the spot in the gym and look at it. And I was like, I met Jesus there. And that was kind of crazy. Not everybody's story is like that. Some of you, you're like, it was the summer of 79. It was the summer of 79. At some point during that summer, I became convinced of the truth of the gospel. And I got into the fall and realized I was walking with the Lord. And at some point in one of those prayers of confession, my justification happened. Not totally sure when it was, but I got baptized in September. That I know, right? It, it, it isn't the same every, in, in, in every person's story. But from the point of conversion to the time when you clock out, when you die, or when the Lord Jesus returns, whichever comes first, we are running our race. Here is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Conversion is a turning into the right road. The next thing is to walk in it. The daily going on in that road is as essential as the first starting if you would reach the desired end. To strike the first blow is not all the battle. To him that overcomes, the crown is promised. To start in the race is nothing. Many have done that who have failed. But to hold out till you reach the winning post is the great point of the matter. Perseverance is as necessary to a man's salvation as conversion. And so our race begins at conversion. And the sort of race that we're being called to here, where we run with endurance, is a race where we run all the way to the end faithfully. We hold out until we reach the winning post. The Greek word for endurance here is hupomeno, carries with it this idea of patience, of steadfastness. There is a determination that I will press on, I will not give up, I will run the redeemed, uh, the, the race of the redeemed life that God has given to me. And that is the command we must heed. We must seek to obey as children of the Lord. And, and if you're not a Christian, you got to stop right now. If you're saying, I want to run this race, I want to touch the winner's post, then you have to stop right now and you have to pray to God and you have to say, God, forgive me of my sin. I'm a sinner. There is no way that I can be saved on my own. I'm putting all of my hope and my faith in your son that he lived a sinless life and he died a sinner's death on my behalf and he rose from the grave and he defeated my sin and he defeated my death and he proved he is the son of God and I'm agreeing with you that my sin is evil and I'm turning my back on it and I'm putting my faith in your son I want your holy spirit I want forgiveness I want eternal life Lord please give it in the name of Jesus Christ you need that okay you need that because right now if you're not a Christian you don't have a race you have no race to run 
You have a life to live that will end in judgment, but you have no race to run. You need to repent today. But for those who have repented and they have put their trust in Christ and they are seeking to run with endurance, how in the world do we do it? And this leads to our first teaching point this morning. Number one, we run our race in light of God's faithfulness and those who came before us. We run our race in light of God's faithfulness and those who came before us. Here's a spoiler alert, all right? We're going to finish with Jesus today. After all, the sermon is called Triune Strength, and this, or the series is called Triune Strength. This sermon is called The Example of the Son, okay? So obviously, we're going to get to Jesus, and every Sunday, we get to Jesus. That, that is the point. He is the star of the show. But in terms of preaching, there's a couple ways to play this passage. You can start with Jesus, and you can work your way down, or we can start with the witnesses and work our way up. And I think that it makes more sense to work our way up to Christ, because He is the culmination right? All these witnesses in Hebrews 11 are pointing to him. So let's start with the witnesses. When the author says, therefore, we need to know what the therefore is there for. That's a really corny little uh, saying, but when it comes to Bible interpretation, it's a really helpful rule. In this case, the therefore is referring to everybody in Hebrews 11 and the faith that they had in the Lord. The author just takes you on this trip through Israel's history, especially from the fall to the period of the judges. And we don't have time to read it, but I'll just summarize. He tells us about how by faith Abel offered an acceptable gift to God. And by faith Enoch was taken up to heaven. And by faith Noah trusted God and rescued his family from judgment. By faith Abraham followed God to Canaan when God called. By faith, Sarah received the power to conceive and to bear Isaac with Abram in old age. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac up on Mount Moriah, even though it is his only son and he knows his promise is supposed to come through this child, he offers him up to God in an act of faith and of course the Lord provides the ram in the thicket. Isaac then by faith blesses his sons and Jacob by faith blesses his sons and Joseph by faith believes Israel will go back home and will not remain in Egypt. Moses by faith suffers with Israel and then delivers Israel from Egypt. By faith Israel crosses over the Red Sea on dry ground. By faith Israel sees the walls of Jericho fall. By faith Rahab the prostitute does not die in the siege. By faith, the judges led Israel and accomplished great things. And by faith, God's servants were persecuted and some have even been martyred because the world was not worthy of them. And the author says, all these are to be commended for their faith and the witness they provide. But also points out that they long to see what you see with spiritual eyes this morning. That Isaiah longed to understand what you understand says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. We have the better thing in Christ, in the new covenant. Now we go back to chapter 11. How does the verse, or chapter 12, in the beginning of it, how does verse 1 start? Therefore, in light of the fact that we have all these witnesses who have gone before us, And they have lived by faith. Let us run. Let us run. We know that running by faith can happen. We have seen it in the lives of Abel and Enoch and Isaac and Rahab and the judges, right? We know you can run with faith. 
We know you can run after the Lord and not give up and be rewarded because it happened in the life of Noah and in the life of Moses and in the lives of the the patriarchs. What Hebrews 11 is telling us and what Hebrews 12 is telling us in the beginning is that we do not run our race in a vacuum. No. Instead, we run our race with a cloud of witnesses around us. Now, I don't think this means that they are like people in New York City up in their apartments looking over the marathon, right? And, and, and the Old Testament saints are just jumping up and down for you in heaven going, run, 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 okay? I don't think that's what this is, all right? Instead, this is just the, the, the Bible telling us that the lives of these saints and their reward reminds us God can be trusted. Their life is a witness. Their story is a witness. Their race is a witness. You don't need to spend time sitting around wondering if God is trustworthy. Moses proved it for you. And so did Noah. And and so did the saints who quenched the power of fire. As well as those who were mocked and flogged and killed with the sword. All of them proved it for us. And you know what? They didn't even have the fullness of the new covenant revealed. They were believing forward by faith. We have it revealed and are able to look backward and believe by faith and understand what they long to understand. Let's keep looking at verse 1. We have to do more than just looking back if we're going to run our race. The author says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So not just considering the cloud of witnesses, but we must consider the sin that's in our lives. To get to the bottom of what's being said, we need to understand how runners ran races in the first century at these games. David Allen says, in the first century AD, runners ran in the stadium virtually naked. Now, before you lose your mind, do they not do the same thing now? Have you seen how little clothing, I mean, it's like the smallest shorts, the smallest, I mean, everything's tight. It's, they, they don't want anything to constrict them as they run, right? But that's not how they came in. It said they would enter wearing long, flowing, colorful robes. At the start of the race, these would be discarded. In like manner, the author is exhorting believers to discard anything that would encumber them and hinder them from running the race. I do have to say as a lifelong pro wrestling fan, these pan-Hellenic runners are basically just Ric Flair, right? And like the Macho Man from like 86 to 89, all right? Long flowing robe, take it off, and then you compete in your underwear. That's pretty much what Ric Flair did for 50 years, okay? It's still doing it, still going, you know? Um, Woo, all right, I had to get in there. So, (laughs) done, let's keep going. Very brief and unnecessary detour. But here's the important application and necessary. In the same way the runners would discard their robes so they were able to run faster, we have to discard any weight that would keep us from finishing our race and running with endurance. And the weight being talked about is not some colorful, flowy, feathery robe. It's sin. It is transgression against God that that separates us from Him, that, that breaks our fellowship with Him and poisons our knowledge of Him. And so in other words, the Christian race is not so concerned with hurdles on the track, but hurdles in the heart. The Christian runner looks at their life and says, anything that could get in the way and anything that could slow me down, it has to go. And so number two, we run our race by laying aside anything that slows us down. We run our race by laying aside anything that slows us down. Hebrews is especially concerned with this. 
warning its listeners not to take lightly the sin that threatens to end their race. Because remember, the big concern is that people are gonna they're gonna peel off from the church and, and go back into trusting in the flesh and in circumcision and the law and all of that. So you hear things like this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't let the fine roots of sin, don't let the root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, because that's how your life ends up being defiled. That's how your race gets stopped. You drop your guard, sexual immorality comes in, you you trade in your holiness for a moment of gratification. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 don't let this happen. Keeps going in Hebrews 13, verse 4, when he says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Same idea, right? The marriage bed is holy. It's not to be defiled with sex outside of God's commands. Keep it holy. Don't let it get all marred up with the lust of the flesh. And and, and your life's the same way. Don't let it get defiled by a love of money. Be content with what you have. And don't let your contentment in the faithful God of the universe be traded in for a trust and stuff that's going to end up in a yard sale. Don't let a lust of your flesh end your race, and don't let a lust of your eyes end your race. And so that is one of the major themes of Hebrews, are these warnings. This is how we lived before we started running our race. We weren't concerned with that. We weren't concerned with, you know, is this going to keep me from knowing God or being close to God? We think about that. If our flesh called and said, hey, this is going to feel good, you should do it. We're like, yeah, let's do it right? We didn't stop and consult God about it. It was like, it feels good. I'm going to go chase that. And that's the way that most people live their lives. Some of you could be living in suffering today because God is disciplining you for trying to live this way after salvation. That's real, right? If you keep reading in this chapter, we learn that God disciplines those whom he loves as a good father. That doesn't mean that if you have suffering in your life today, it's definitely because of discipline, but it does mean we can't rule it out, right? And that is why whenever things come into our lives that cause us hardship, it's a good time for self-examination and reflection. But prior to salvation, we didn't even consider such things. We did not self-examine. Sin was our master. When sin gave a command, we just answered the command. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers who will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. By the way, you ever start feeling like you're better than all the lost people in your life? You need to come back to that verse, right? And such were some of you. The only difference between us and the world is that Jesus stepped in. It's nothing that we did. He stepped in, and such were some of you. And I want to point out one other thing about that verse. Nor men who practice homosexuality. If you're running around and you're thinking that God cannot and will not save homosexuals, you are wrong. 
Because right here in the Bible, it tells us that in the early church, there were people who used to be men who practiced homosexuality, who repented of their sin, and they became a part of the early church, and they were faithful believers. And we need to pray for those things. And we need to believe God for those things. We should not be justified, but we are. And if we are, then we should run our race. And we should not be answering the command of sin as our master. We should be answering the command of Christ. He is the master. If you have turned from your sin and put your salvation in Jesus, it should show in how you obey Him. It should show in how you love Him. And Hebrews 12.1 is telling us that when things come into our lives that threaten the race, then we've got to put them aside like the runner's robe. Sometimes those are things we love. It's, it's sin that our, our hearts have become knitted to. We have grown to love that sin. It doesn't matter if it's the Word of God or the Spirit of God through our conscience calling something unclean. We must count it as unclean and a threat to our ability to run and lay it aside. Let me give you an example of how this works. I wanted to marry my wife. We had only been together for about eight months. We had gone on a mission trip and uh, saw her working with some inner city kids. She was just like sitting on a playground with just like four inner city girls around her. She was just talking to them and sharing the gospel with them. And my dad was like, you better marry her. <laughs> he was like, that's the one. Just are, are you sure? Like, you know, hitting through my thick head. And I'm like, dad, I know, I know, I know. Okay. So at this point, I go to my mentor at the time, the guy who was discipling me, and I said, I think I want to marry Katie. And I'm ready for a 45-minute discussion, a session of prayer, maybe give me some books. He looks at me, he goes, eh, marry her. And I was like, that's it? That's all you got? I'm going to need more than that. And he goes, okay. So we turn to Hebrews 12. And he says, if your marrying her is going to dishonor God, then by marrying her, you are putting on weight that is going to threaten your race. So your relationship with her either honors God or dishonors God. Right? If you're marrying her is going to honor God, then by marrying her, what you're doing is you're actually taking off weight together. You're actually going to run better together. And he looks at me and says, so which is it? I was like, I'm absolutely sure we will run better together. He goes, then it's taking off weight by the ring. Do you see how that works? Sometimes it's real clear. God gives us a thou shalt or a thou shalt not in the scriptures. You don't need your conscience for that. What you need your conscience to do is to bow down to the authority of the word of God. Okay? But there's other times, like, I, I don't have a verse in here that's like, thou shalt marry Katie Hash, right? On this date and at this time. So what I've got to do is use the wisdom of the Bible and I've got to use uh, the Spirit of God in me who speaks to my conscience, and I have to see whether or not this is a weight that's going to keep me from running or if it's a weight that's going to enable me to run. And thankfully, she is a weight that, or she is, a, she is not weight, okay? She has enabled me to run. Let's <laughs> so make sure I say this the right way, very clearly, before we leave here today. Thankfully, in our marriage, we have been able to run better together, much more than we would have apart. When you are a believer, though, whether you're pursuing a marriage, whether you're pursuing holiness and singleness, whether you're pursuing a new job or trying to be faithful in an old job, whatever you're doing, there should be an obsession in your life to add speed to your spiritual stride, to run with more and more God-honoring action each day of your life. Christian life is a race that must be run without giving up. 
We've seen that as we run with endurance, we listen to the lives of the Old Testament faithful. They remind us God can be trusted. As we run with endurance, we must cast off sin. Now, this is where we've got to be careful because if we in church right now, you go home and you think, I need to trust God, I need to sin less. And if I just look within and muster up some willpower and some self-control, I can live righteously and I'll get my reward. If that's what you think, you understand the gold, you don't understand how to move the ball down the field. The answer is not found in your strength and in your abilities. Not in your natural strength and abilities. You couldn't even run a race in your natural strength and abilities. This is where we look to verse 2 and we get to Jesus. The author says, looking to Jesus. That's how we run our race. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So number three, we run our race with eyes fixed on Jesus. This verse tells us four things about Jesus. And with each aspect of his character, we understand how he is our true example as we run. He's the trailblazer. He's the tone setter. First thing you see is he is the beginning and he is the end of our faith. He is the founder. Some translations say author or pioneer or source. The bottom line is that your salvation begins with Christ. He's also the perfecter. Remember, one of the main themes of Hebrews is the end of the sacrificial system because the death of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, has come. So in Hebrews 10.4 it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Meaning, the blood of the sacrifices could never make your faith perfect. They only pointed to one who could. But now, He, the perfect, has come and He has died for sin and He is able to fully forgive sin and make you right with God and in the end bring you home to glory where you will be without sin forever. So, He is the perfecter of your faith in a way that the sacrificial system never could be because He takes you all the way to glory. So He is the beginning of our faith because of the work that He has done for us to save us we, we would never know God without Christ, and He is the perfecter of our faith because He will bring us home in the eternal age. And we will know God without the influence of sin at all. And so as I am renouncing sin and I am seeking to trust God like an Old Testament saint and I am tempted to falter, when I am tempted to think that sin is better, when I am tempted to think my own way is better, when I am tempted to think that Jesus is inferior to anything that my heart wants, I have to remember this, that without Christ I would not have faith, and without Christ my faith would never ever reach its full maturity. And if that's true, then how can I look to anybody else? Nobody else can give new life, and nobody else preserves new life. So where else would I look to as an example when I run in this new life? Second thing we see is that Jesus is enduring for joy, he has endured for joy, he has, he has joyfully obeyed the will of the Father by dying for His people and rising again. His death and all that came with it, right? It caused Him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. It caused Him to cry out, Father, let this cup pass from Me. But He endured it because it was a joyful thing for Him to rescue His bride. The word for endure in verse 2, this is very important, is the same from verse 1. Same Greek word in, in its root. 
So what that means is that when you try to run your race with endurance without giving up, understand that Jesus already did it before you. He endured just like you. And I don't know what God's calling you to today. I mean, a lot of you have walked in with some really, really hard things in your life that I hope I never have to face down. And you've shared those things to me as your pastor, right? I know what you're going through. Some of you, you've not shared those things, and you're carrying them maybe alone. But I know this, whatever God's called you to, it is not harder than what he called Jesus to. Jesus endured the hardest race that any human being will ever endure on this earth. No one has faced a race with more suffering because nobody else suffered for the sins of the nations. You might be facing some heinous and horrendous stuff and, 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 and some hardship that is unimaginable, but understand that Christ faced it before you and you are not alone in it. So when you pray, you pray to a king that has already endured. And when you cry, you cry to a king that has already endured. And when you are silent, you are silent before a king who has already endured. His endurance is what reminds us that he doesn't just get us, as the commercials say. It's even better than that. He became one of us, and he entered into our world, and he knows what it's like to stand at a funeral with his feet on the soil and to feel the air dry the tears on his face. He knows what it's like to love somebody and to have them, one of your closest friends, deny you and betray you. He knows what it's like to suffer for the work that God has called him to. And he joyfully endured, and now he says, walk after me. Keep your eyes on me. Follow my example and walk after me. Thirdly, we're told that he despised the shame. I'll turn to Al Mohler, who will help us understand what this means. He says, people were typically famous due to noble birth, inherited wealth, or military genius and prowess. Through athletics, people could become well-known, improve their standing, and enter uh, a new realm of life as a champion. By the way, completely the same in our culture today. After those games, the winner was granted, granted the honor of sitting with royalty. This is how the author describes Christ at the end of his race. Christ endured the cross for us, not because he was looking for monetary or societal gain or because he wanted to wear a laurel crown. And said he despised the shame, refusing to see it as shame, and wore the crown of thorns for our good and his Father's glory. Jesus was willing to take on the reproach of the world if it meant obeying the Father. He would just cast it off and count it as a part of the work. And that's crucial for us. If we're going to follow the example of the Son, we're going to be rejected like the Son. He told us, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. For many, they do not follow the example of the Son, and this rejection from the world causes them to walk away from believing. They come around Christianity, they get interested in Christianity, initially agree with the, the facts that the Bible uh, puts out there but they never follow Jesus example never repent of sin never really put their faith in Jesus and then when any sort of suffering comes because their name is attached to the church or to Christ they're like I didn't sign up for this I'm out I, I was coming around to have my ethics cleaned up my morality cleaned up a little bit I'm not here for this I'm not I'm not signing up for reproach 
Jesus says in Matthew 13, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And when Jesus interprets that, he basically says that it's the, the rocky ground represents those who hear the word, they get really excited initially, but then the suffering that comes along with the believing of the word, um, that, that uh, causes the, 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 the faith to take no root. And then the sun just scorches it. The, the heat of the suffering scorches it, and they just go, I'm walking away, I'm done. They were never saved to begin with. They were sniffing around, they were agreeing, they were never actually converted. Suffering comes, and they're like, I'm out. Can't be that way if we are going to be followers of Christ. When the reproach comes, we have to recognize that this is just part of the gig. This is a part of following him. They hated him first, they will hate me now. We have to keep our eyes on him, knowing that he has gone before us, and that he has despised the shame. And then fourthly, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, meaning he has ascended. And the fact that he has ascended means he's completed his mission. That's all wrapped up in that. He came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. He endured for joy, he despised the shame, he finished the work of his first advent. And we know that's true because he is seated at the right hand of God. And the next time he gets up, it will be for his second advent, and he will return on the clouds. His seat at the Father's right hand is a symbol of his winning glory. You know how when athletes, when they win the Super Bowl, they go to the White House, right? And go see the president. People, some, some of those guys, they grew up in, in, in places. They were impoverished. They, they came out of really, really poor situations. They're walking into the White House, man, because they want a game, right? And the same way, the, the, the Pan-Hellenic athletes would win, and they would get to go sit with the dignitaries. Jesus has won... Therefore, he sits at the place of highest honor at the Father's right hand. The Olympic runners got a wreath on their head. Jesus got a throne as the Lord of all. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. O'er us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Her second verse of that hymn captures those four statements about Christ in Hebrews 12. I don't think that's an accident. Christ died and he rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father. His endurance for joy and his despising the shame has broken the power of sin in our lives. And we are more than conquerors in Christ. We are double victors in him. Winners over sin and death and Satan. And it's not even close. So in light of that, as you finish out your days, turn your eyes upon Jesus. He has run the race, and He now calls on you to run yours. Fix your eyes as, as, as your example. Fix your eyes on Him. I'm going to have the band come uh, to lead us in one final song. you probably guess what it'll be. Ben saw the sermon this week. He was like, so do I need to change the song? I was like, that would probably be appropriate. And so we are going to sing Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I want to challenge you uh, to really sing this as a prayer for your own life. If you are in a place today where you feel like you have taken your eyes off of Christ, and in light of the fact that you've taken your eyes off of Christ, you feel like you've struggled to bear up under suffering as much lately, or you feel like you've struggled to find as much joy in the work that God has called you to do lately, turn your eyes upon Him.
If you feel weary from disease that you are carrying in your body or from being a caretaker, turn your eyes upon them. If you're sick of battling the same old sins and the same old habits that have plagued you for years, and you're sick of coming to God and saying to Him in the same conversations, Lord, I'm sorry that it got me again. Turn your eyes upon Him. He is the one who started your faith and He is the one who will perfect it. He is your example and He is your strength. It's Jesus and nothing else.